Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples a mission. We call it the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. It'll be on the screen. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." That was the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. So that's the mission that he gave to them. And then the book of Acts really lays out for us, it chronicles how the disciples were able to accomplish that mission. Because what we see in the book of Acts is that the gospel literally spreads all over the world. Well, tonight we're beginning this four-week series that I mentioned we're calling Church on Fire. And what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks is looking at what made the early church so impactful. And we want to see what we can learn from them from their example and from their lives, because they literally did what has never been done before. And we're told in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, this is what they did. They turned the world upside down. So in the next four weeks, Pastor Tyler and myself are going to highlight four things that made the early church so impactful. If you're taking notes, tonight we're going to be looking at the power of the early church. Next week, Pastor Tyler's going to be talking about the prayer life of the early church. And then we're going to consider the priorities of the early church, the things that it tells us in the book of Acts that they devoted themselves to. And then we're going to wrap it up by looking at the passion of the early church. Does that sound good? All right. So, Tonight we begin here in Acts chapter 1, where it all starts, and verses 1 through 3 give us kind of the intro to the story. The writer is Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he writes, the former account I made, he's speaking there of the Gospel of Luke, the former account I made, O Theophilus, he's writing to his friend, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. In other words, the day that he ascended into heaven. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles that he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Everyone say infallible proofs. You should have that underlined in your Bible because the Christian faith is not a myth. It's not just a nice idea, but it is based on facts and many infallible proofs. The the biggest one being that Jesus Christ beat death, came out of the grave. It's what we're going to be celebrating really all the time, but on Easter, we're going to be celebrating big time. So... Verse 3 again, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom 
of God. So what Luke is telling us here is that after the resurrection, Jesus meets with his disciples. And he was going to talk to them over this 40-day period. uh, He's going to be talking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And did you know that the kingdom of God is what Jesus spoke about more than anything else? More than the heaven, more than hell, more than finances, more than love. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God 161 times. It's mentioned in the Gospels. It is the major theme of his life because he came to establish his kingdom on earth, to establish his kingdom in the hearts of his followers. He came to invade the darkness that had permeated mankind. So here he is again after his resurrection, talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And then verses 4 through 8 give us what we could call the prerequisite for the mission. Notice, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them. Everybody say commanded. I want you to note that, circle that. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. This is important in other words. This is vital to the mission. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for this new experience that he calls being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to note the reaction of the disciples. I mean, these guys are just dense sometimes. You know, Jesus is talking to them about the fact that he's going to, you know, be going to the cross, He's saying, you know, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, and right away, he gets done, and they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I mean, they're just dense, okay? We see that again here. Notice verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, check this out. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, his kingdom. And they're still not getting it. They say, so now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to make, is Israel going to be in power again? That's what's still on their minds because they're thinking, you know, if you're going to establish Israel in power, that means we're going to have a place of power, you know, in your kingdom. And that's what they are interested in. But notice what Jesus says next. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, you guys want power? You're going to receive power, but it's going to be a different kind of power for a different kind of kingdom. And this is what we need to understand, is the only way that these guys were going to be able to carry out the mission that Jesus gave them of reaching the world is that they would need a power working in them that was beyond themselves. They would need a power from on high. 
Now, I find this so interesting. Think about this. These guys, these disciples, they have been with Jesus almost 24-7 for three years, okay? Three years. I mean, they are being discipled by the best discipler that there has ever been. You know, maybe you, somebody discipled you at some point in your faith or somebody's discipling you now and you're like so appreciative. They don't hold a candle to Jesus, okay? I'm just telling you that. They might be good, but they're not that good, okay? This is Jesus. This is God in human flesh. And he trained them personally for three years. But listen, listen, don't miss this. But that wasn't enough. Just his teaching and his training and his instruction and his example wasn't enough for them to be able to fulfill the mission that he called them to. There was something else that they needed, that they still needed in order to be and to do what Jesus called them to be and to do. And this is why he commanded them, you guys need to wait in Jerusalem. For the promise of the Father, this coming of the Holy Spirit. And I say this, if it was necessary for them, for these guys, how much more necessary is it for us? Because Zechariah was right when he said that it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So this was a new concept that Jesus was sharing with them, this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 8, he defines it as the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So this is what we want to talk about tonight. We want to talk about what does that mean, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We want to look at what is the purpose of it. We want to talk about who is it for. And then finally, we want to talk about How does it happen? Those are the the questions that we're going to answer tonight. But before we get into that, I want to just start by talking about, in general, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So keep your place here in Acts chapter 1. We're going to come back here. But I want you to turn a few pages over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, a couple pages to your left. Look at verse 15. This is on the night that Jesus is meeting with his disciples in the upper room. It's where he washes their feet. It's where he talks to them about love, where he shows them that example of the servant. But he also shares some pretty powerful things with them. And this is one of them. Verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever." the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for listen, he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now notice this. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, I'm going to be leaving you. In just a short time, I'm going to be leaving He tells them earlier in that chapter, I'm going to my father's house where there's many dwelling places and I go to prepare one for you. So he's setting this up for them that he was going to be leaving them. But the good news is that these men would not lose Jesus. He says here, I'm not going to leave you orphans though. 
Not leaving you just here all by yourselves, but that actually Jesus was going to stay with them, but in another way, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send you another helper. And literally, that is translated like this, another of the same kind. In other words, I'm sending you a helper that's just like me, because it was going to be the Spirit of Jesus the Holy Spirit that was going to come to dwell with them. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and and note that all of this takes place, as I mentioned before, on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, the night before the crucifixion. This is after the Passover meal, and Jesus is sharing his heart with them. Now, the significance of that is this. If you've ever been around somebody who still has their faculties, but they are a couple of days away you know, from passing, what do they do? They share with you the deepest things on their heart. They'll pull you in. They'll pull the family together. And it's kind of like their final admonition. It's their final words of instruction. It's their final words you know, of encouragement for the family. And, and what they're doing is they're sharing in those moments the most important things on their minds. And so on this night, Jesus is going to share something that is of vital importance. He's going to introduce the disciples to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice verse 17 again that Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, he's with you guys right now. And he was with them because the Holy Spirit was in Jesus. And Jesus was, was with them. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is with you. And what is the function of the Holy Spirit with us? Well, look, keep your place here in chapter 14, but look over to chapter 16 real quick and look at verse 7. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so according to this, Jesus is telling us that the first work of the Holy Spirit with someone, his first job is to convict the world of sin. It's to convict us of our sin and our need for a Savior. It's to convict us of the reality that our sin has separated us from God. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in all of our hearts prior to coming to Christ, that he's with us and he's wooing us, he's convicting us of, of our sin and our guilt and our shame. But Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit, look back in chapter 14, verse 17, he says that the Holy Spirit will be in you. Not just with you, but in you. Completely different Greek word used here. And this is what theologians refer to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of their hearts. They are indwelt with the Spirit of the living God. And what are the, what is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us? Well, the Bible tells us that it's to teach us and bring spiritual things to our remembrance. John 14 verse 26. It's to guide us. 
John 16, verse 13. It's testifying of the things that are to come. It's glorifying Jesus, and it's declaring the things of God. So teaching and guiding and declaring all carry about the idea of the Holy Spirit's working inside of us, bringing instruction and application. In other words, bringing God's word to light in our hearts. It's that work of the Holy Spirit that he opens our minds and hearts up to the word of God and he speaks to us and he gives us insight into how that is to be applied. And he helps us to understand and apply the word of God. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's with you. He's with you guys right now. But there's a new thing that's going to happen. He shall be in you. He's going to come to live inside of you and and indwell you. Now, when did that happen to the disciples? Well, turn over to John chapter 20. A couple pages over. Now this, John chapter 20, takes place after the resurrection. And Jesus is going to appear to his disciples when they're all gathered together behind closed doors. We read in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now why does he say that? Because they're behind closed door, the doors are locked, and suddenly he appears. Would you be a little freaked out? Yeah. So he's like, guys, don't freak out. Peace, peace. It's me. All right? Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, when they understood that he was risen. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As my father has sent me, I also send you. He's reminding them here of the mission. And then he said this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit's. At this moment, we could say this is when the disciples were actually born again. Because you've got to understand, no one was born again prior to Jesus dying on the cross. Because he had to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins before anybody could be truly born again. And so now Jesus has died on the cross. They're seeing him here risen from the dead. And he breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And I want you to note something. Jesus doesn't breathe on them and say, you shall receive the Holy Spirit. Like, hey, there's something that's going to happen in a little bit. No, 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 don't confuse that. Sometimes people confuse this. He says, no, receive the Holy Spirit like as right now. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. When Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit, it happens. So in this moment, on that night, they're born again, they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, now turn back to the book of Acts. Because now we read here in the book of Acts, Jesus is describing a third aspect of the Holy Spirit. He says, John 14, 17, hey, he's with you guys. He's with everybody, convicting them of sin. He's going to be in you. That happens when you're born again. And he comes in and dwells in you. But he says, now I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And this is what Jesus refers to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is when everything changes for these guys. 
This is when they start moving in great power and in great boldness. This is an amazing thing that happens to these guys. In the remainder of our time tonight, I want us to discuss what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is it for? What's its purpose? Who is it for? How do you receive this special blessing? So let's start with what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The terms filled, baptized, and the Holy Spirit coming upon are all terms that are used to describe the same thing. Notice, Jesus is the one who calls this being baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, look, John came and baptized with water, but there will come one after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These are all terms, though, that Jesus mentions, filled, coming upon, baptized, speaking of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, usually when we hear the word baptism, we think of water baptism. In fact, I've asked people. In our church, I've said, hey, have you ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they say, yeah, yeah, 2019, down at the harbor, you, you dunked me. The water was really, really cold. I'm like, no, 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 that's water baptism. But oftentimes, they hear that term baptism, and they get confused. Water baptism is something that you do in order to identify with Jesus. You're making a stand. You're identifying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple, and I'm making this outward proclamation today of this inward work that God has done in my heart by going into the waters of baptism. That's water baptism. Water baptism is something that you do, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is done to you by the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 5 again. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized, note that phrase, with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And then verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Think of it this way. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell inside of you. You have all of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of Him. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is Him getting more of you. Okay, That's the difference. And that's why the word baptized is actually a good word. Because when we think about water baptism, what's happening? Somebody is standing there in the water, and the water's maybe up to their waist. You could say the water has half of them. But then we dunk them over into the water, and they are fully immersed so that now the water has all of them. That's what happens when somebody's baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting all of them. Think of it this way. We live by the beach, and we like to go down to the beach, and we'll go put our feet in the water, and it'll be like, oh, it's cold. I don't know if I want to go in, you know, and our feet are in the water. But we could go home and say, I went in the ocean today, and that wouldn't be a lie. We got our feet in it, right? But when we have our feet in it, we still have full control of what we want to do. But then sometimes, you know, we get a little braver, we wade out up to our knees. Again, we're in the ocean, 
the ocean has us, you could say, but it doesn't have all of us. Then maybe we get out a little bit further and we're up to our waist. We still can move and have our faculties and we're, we're in the ocean. We have, you know, we're, we're in, in the ocean, but the world, the ocean doesn't necessarily have all of us, but it happens when we get to that place where suddenly we are overhead. But what happens at that point? It's like then you can catch a wave and the power of that wave can propel you faster than you could swim on your own. That, that's that, an idea of a picture of what happens when somebody is baptized in the Holy Spirit. That coming upon is the Holy Spirit getting all of them. Another analogy I love to use is that of a sailboat. If you've ever been sailing, you know that you can be out on a sailboat on a day that's you know, a little bit windy. And if that sail is just opened a little bit, that boat's just going to kind of you know, cruise at a nice slow pace. You know, the wind is only catching part of the sail. That's why. It's just moving part of the sail. But then you get to that point where it's like, hey, we got to get back. You know, I got to get to work. So what do you do? You turn around, you open up that sail, and now that sail, all of the wind, same amount of wind, but it's now catching all of the sail, and it's moving that boat at a faster speed. That's another good picture of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like. You're the sail, and it's he's now getting just more of you. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit getting all of us. Now, what's the purpose then of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, he tells us here in our text, he says, notice, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to notice that he says, I'm going to read that again, and you shall, what does it say? Be witnesses. Notice it doesn't say, and you shall go witnessing. No, he says, and you shall be witnesses. It's not necessarily, it can include that, going witnessing, but it's being a witness. It's the Holy Spirit getting all of you and giving you power from on high to live a vibrant and effective Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit giving you boldness to stand for Jesus in any situation. And it's the Holy Spirit empowering you to serve Jesus. Because, you know, this is the problem that we have. We've probably all done this. We can try to serve Jesus in our own strength. How many of you have tried to do that before? I have. Too many times. And you know what happens when you try to serve Jesus in your own strength? You get worn out really quickly. You find a lot of times like you're just, you know, fighting, like you're beaten against a wall. It reminds me of the story of this lumberjack who went to the hardware store one day and he saw this, you know, sale sign for this new saw that was supposed to be able to cut down 15 uh, trees in a hole in a day. And before this, he could only cut five. And so he was like, this is amazing. I'm going to buy this thing. And so he buys it, and he goes. And after a couple of days, he comes back to the store. He's all frustrated because he, he could only cut down two trees with this brand new, great saw. And he says, something's wrong with this. This is defective. I can only cut down two. And my old saw, I could cut down five. Well, then the manager of the store comes over and 
looks at it, and he's like, what? It looks okay to me. And then he grabs this little cord and pulls it, and the thing goes, and the lumberjack jumps back. Like, what is that? You see, he was trying to cut down trees without without the power. He's like just his hands, you know, trying to do that with that thing. And that's what we do. We can try to serve God in in the power of our own strength, and we get exhausted, and it doesn't work. So we see this very definitively in the lives of the apostles. Forty days before, most of these guys had forsaken Jesus. On the very night that he was saying to them, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be taken from you. He says, and all of you are going to forsake me. And they did. Remember Peter, though? Peter stood up and he vowed, I won't forsake you, Jesus. The rest of these guys might, but I'll even die for you. And what did Peter do? Peter denies that he even knows Jesus three times. Peter failed miserably. But that all changes. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on these guys, something radical happens. There's a radical change. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with, in, with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with... Now, notice that. They're using a different term. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Now he's calling it filled. All speaking about the same thing, this being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice... This was a very demonstrative moment in the life of the apostles. And some of the things that takes, took place on this day never happen again. It's a definitive moment in the life of the church, the early church. It was, it was the sign that Jesus was, I think, wanting them to really know that something unique was happening so that they would know for sure that this is what he had spoken of. And these were the unusual things that happened. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So the room, it's, it's, it's not windy, but it's the sound, the roar of a wind. And then there's these tongues of fire that are on each one of their heads. That was, again, unique. And then it says they all spoke in tongues. Now, that wasn't unusual. You'll see that happen several times in the book of Acts. But what happens is a crowd of people hear the wind, and they, they, they hear the apostles start to speak in tongues, and they begin to gather outside the house. They're wondering, what is going on? Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them, speaking of the disciples, speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? 
And then Luke mentions, he lists all the names and areas and languages that these people have come from. And they're hearing, this is what's baffling them, they're hearing their own languages being spoken of. And notice what they say, by these Galileans. And what was interesting or significant about that is the Galileans weren't considered to be the most educated people, okay? In Jesus' day, the Galileans, that was like Hicksville, all right? You know, I don't know what we would compare that to, Bakersfield or something, I don't know. But, you know, it would be, these guys were like the Hicks. They weren't known to be scholars, you know. There weren't, there weren't a lot of, you know, philosophers and coming out of Galilee, probably none. So they're thinking, like, this is weird. These guys are uneducated. They're, they're not changed. But they're speaking fluently all of these languages. What on earth is going on? Now, I don't have time tonight to go into all the nuances of the gift of tongues. I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version of what the Bible tells us about it. It tells us that it's a prayer and praise language. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14 that those who speak in tongues, this is a key, speak to not to men, but they speak to God. So it's a praise language, and that's what we see here. Notice verse 11, it says, And we hear them speaking in our own tongues, or our own languages, the wonderful works of God. This praise language, they're praising God in, in these languages that they didn't know. The disciples didn't know these languages, but they were overwhelmed in this moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they just start opening up their mouths and they're praising God in these languages. Now, some have tried to say that what the apostles were doing at this moment is they were evangelizing. And this was a special moment that God gave them the ability in this moment to evangelize, and they were all preaching the gospel. If that was true, let me just say this, and those who say that say, and that's why tongues isn't for today, because it was that special moment at this particular time for these guys so they could preach the gospel to all these people in all these languages. If that was true, if that's what was happening here, what happens next? wouldn't have been necessary. Because if you notice in verse 13, they start mocking. Somebody starts saying, you know, these guys, they're, they're, they're just drunk. These Galileans, they're, they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, 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 no. We're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, some of you in your BC, day, BC days would be saying, so? Um, <laughs> It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But then he says, no, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what happens through the rest of this chapter, or the next several verses, is Peter preaches this incredible message. And Peter boldly declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, whom you crucified, but God has risen from the dead. And the end result is these people cry out and say, what do we need to do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And we read here in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people got saved on that day. We're talking radical revival happens here. 
Now, if they were evangelizing as they were speaking in tongues, if that's what was happening, there wouldn't have been a need for Peter to preach. They would have just asked the question, we hear what you're saying. What do we need to do to be saved? But no, the tongues was what God used to draw them. They're hearing these guys praise God. They're marveling. How are they, how are they saying these wonderful things about God in our tongues? And that leads to, that sets the stage for Peter to preach this message. Later on, Paul will make it clear. Now, this was a unique thing that God does here in using tongues in that way. Paul would later tell us in the book of 1 Corinthians that tongues are basically for a personal prayer and praise language. And if it is to be used, that gift is used in the church, it needs to be accompanied with the gift of an interpretation of tongues. And if you want to know more about that on our website, we have a whole series we did on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and we go into all of that in great detail. But this is my point. This is the thing I, don't, I want you to come back and, and catch this. My point is this. These same disciples who 40 days before had forsaken Jesus, this same guy Peter, who 40 days before had denied that he even knew Jesus, suddenly these disciples, and particularly Peter, are filled with boldness that they didn't have before. And this boldness is going to continue to grow. And this power is going to be, begin to grow. And they're going to be moving in this boldness and this power under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they are being witnesses all around Jerusalem. And the gospel is spreading. 3,000 people get saved here. And the next chapter over, we see another 2,000 get saved. God is moving and working. And this is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to be witnesses. It's to empower us to live vibrant lives for Jesus. It's to empower us to take a stand for Jesus in the midst of growing opposition. And guys, the opposition against us, it's growing. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need this power from on high to serve Jesus and to live impactful lives for the kingdom. And so the early church needed this empowering in order them to, for them to move forward and carry out the mission that God had given them. And if they needed it, if it was essential for them, how much more so is it essential for us? Well, that brings us to the third question. So who is this for? Again, look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's significant. Because that points us back to something that Jesus had said in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, prior to his ascension. I think it'll be on the screen. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father, and note the phrase, upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endowed with power, endued with power from on high. Jesus calls this, both in Acts and in Luke, the promise of the Father. So who's this for? This is for every single believer in Jesus Christ who recognizes, I need help. Who recognizes, I can't do this on my own. I can't carry out the mission. I can't be who God wants me to be on my own. So that's who it's for. How does it happen? Well, in Luke chapter 11, 
Jesus was teaching on the subject of prayer, and he gives an analogy. He says, you know, you, you, got, you know how to take care of your kids. You know, if your son asks for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If he asks for a piece of bread, you're not going to give him a stone. And then he says this, and if you, being evil, and the idea there is evil in comparison to God, because we are, in comparison to holy God, we, we are evil. Our motives are all messed up. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Is that what he says? No. He defines one gift. How much more will the Holy Spirit, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Again, he's talking there about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Your Heavenly Father, He wants to give that to you. Now with the disciples, this happened after they were born again. There in John chapter 20. Then they're baptized 40 days later or so on the day of Pentecost. We see other instances in the book of Acts where it happens after salvation as well. But we see in Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 11 in the story with Cornelius, it happens simultaneously. They hear the gospel, they put their faith in Jesus, and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit right then and there. The point is, is it doesn't matter when it happens, the point is, is has it happened? And I think there are some definitive things that we should notice in our lives when we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. For some people, they speak in tongues. I remember Greg Laurie sharing about this, and he says, you know, I I didn't speak in tongues. But you know what I did do? He goes, I suddenly had a boldness to share the gospel and to evangelize, and I was doing it with an effectiveness I never had before. He said, that's what he could see, the change that happened when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. When he finally came to that place of saying, Jesus, I want you to have all of me. Greg Glory. he recognizes a boldness. I know in my life, I did speak in tongues, but what I noticed even more so was more significant was I had a boldness that I didn't have before and I had a hunger to get into God's word that I didn't have prior to that either. The idea though is when somebody is baptized in the Holy Spirit, you notice it. Now, here's the thing we need to understand though. There is one baptism of the Holy Spirit that we encounter. But there are many what we might call refillings, because Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the phrases he uses here for fill, that word be filled is be continually being filled. Be continually being filled. And we see this refilling, this re-empowering, this recharging in the life of the apostles. As you go through the book of Acts, we see it in Acts 3, verse 10, Acts 4, verse 8, Acts 4, verse 31, Acts 13, verse 9, Acts 13, verse 52. In all these places it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like again, like a second time, a third time, a fourth time. 
So it happens, this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when we are assuming a lifestyle of declaring, Jesus, I want you to have all of me. Jesus, I'm dependent upon your power. Now, it's interesting, that phrase I mentioned in Ephesians um, 5.18. In fact, can you put that back on there? Ephesians 5.18. It's interesting because in that passage in Ephesians 5.18, Paul mentions that. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit right before he starts talking about marriage and parenting. Right before he starts talking to the, the husbands about what their role is in the marriage and the wife about what their role is in the marriage and then what their role are going to be as parents. He says, hey, you need to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why he says that? You know why he puts that there? Because we don't have the power in and of ourselves to be the husband, the wife, the parent that God has called us to be. We need his help. We need that daily dependency upon the Holy Spirit. This is a tremendous gift from the Lord, this empowering. But you have to be surrendered to the Lord in order for Him to empower you, to come upon you, to fill you. You need to know the purpose the purpose is not so that I can do these crazy wild things, but no, 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 so I can be his witness. So I can live a vibrant, bold life for Jesus. So I can serve him effectively. And, see, and our God is a good, good father who keeps his promises and who loves to give good gifts to his children. Now, one last thing. Jesus told the disciples that they were to go to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. That they were waiting for a specific day that was going to happen when this was going to happen, this, this new thing was going to happen to them. We no longer have to wait for the Holy Spirit, but we do wait on the Holy Spirit. That we wait for Him. That's why Jesus, when He was teaching about prayer, He would say to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's that persistent, dependent attitude that the Lord wants to see in us where we're saying, Lord, I'm acknowledging I can't do this. I need your help. I need this empowering. So Lord, baptize me. Lord, fill me afresh. That's the idea. And so this is the first thing. This, everything else that we're going to talk about in the next three weeks flows from this. This is what made the early church so impactful, so dynamic, as that these men began walking in a whole new way, no longer in their strength and in the power of their own might, but now they became these vessels that the Holy Spirit had full control of their lives. And they were yielded and surrendered to Him, and God did things in their lives that they could never even imagine was possible. And that's what he wants to do for us.